Welcome to the Healthy Hair Podcast. Your host, Dr. Amy Brenner, is a board-certified OBGYN with additional certifications in functional and integrative medicine. This podcast is meant to help women find reliable, relevant information to help them feel better, look better, and live better. Here you will hear in-depth information about hormones, sexual medicine, aesthetics, cosmetic gynecology, and functional medicine. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Healthy Her, and we have a great treat for you. Um, Steve Goldring has been with us before, and he is just another hormone expert, so I always love talking to you. So welcome back, Steve. Thank you so much, Amy. It's great to be back. I think it's what been a year, year and a half since I've been on your program before, and we had such a great time talking about hormones. We love to kind of geek out on them together. So I'm excited for our second opportunity to do the same thing. Yeah. So last time we talked in, in depth about the, that study, women, the Women's Health Initiative that gave hormones such a bad rap. So if you haven't caught that one, we really dig deep into, you know, why hormones got such a bad rap. And, and I am still just amazed when people come in and say, my doctor told me I should get off of that. My doctor told me I shouldn't do that. Like it's 21 years now that we're still trying to put out that myth. Absolutely. And, and I, I always tell people that the, the idea that hormones increase your risk for breast cancer basically across the board comes from the women's health initiative. And it really comes from misinterpretations of the women's health initiative. And I'll, I'll mention some mis misinterpretations uh, that kind of go beyond just breast cancer later on in our conversation. But it's it's really sad that a lot of women are experiencing so much, uh, so, so many menopause symptoms and serious health risks because their doctors have made them afraid of hormone replacement therapy in an unreasonable way based on misinformation. Yeah. So if you haven't heard that episode where Steve and I talk, it's episode 15. I really encourage you to look at that because we, we do a great job of interpreting the literature in that study. So go back and catch that episode where we interpret the Women's Health Initiative. Um, but today we're going to talk and focus more a little specifically about osteoporosis and muscle loss. But before we go there, for those who haven't watched episode 15, can you just give us a little bit of your background so people know who we're talking to today? Yeah, so I've been a pharmacist for, I don't know, 30 years or something like that. Um, most of that time, I've worked as a compounding pharmacist, and a lot of my time at the pharmacy counter was counseling patients about bioidentical hormones and especially women in menopause. Those are probably the, the most common patient that I would see. And over time, I, I think it's probably six or seven years ago, I was at the pharmacy counter and I was talking to a woman in menopause and explaining to her how optimal hormones can help reduce or maybe even eliminate her menopause symptoms, but also uh, reduce her long-term health risks at the same time. And so I start a conversation that's maybe supposed to last five minutes or so at the pharmacy counter. And this woman has question after question after question. And I'm excited to answer those questions. But pretty soon that five-minute conversation at the pharmacy counter stretches out to 10 and 15 and 20 minutes. The problem is there's a woman behind her in menopause who has the same questions and a woman behind that woman. 
And so I started to think, you know what, I, I, I might be able to take this information that I'm excited to share and share it with women on a, a one-to-many basis rather than just one-on-one. And so I came up with a set of, I actually have a suite of courses. There are digital courses that explain hormones and hormone optimization. Uh, it started with women in menopause, but I also expanded to include uh, PCOS and men with low testosterone and some uh, procedures, some some things that can help us kind of reduce our risk for Alzheimer's and a bunch of other topics. So that is my full-time, uh, my full-time gig right now is really encouraging patients and helping them understand hormones and hormone optimization. And I actually do that by helping doctors, nurse practitioners, and PAs to educate their patients. So that's kind of the the long-winded answer of where I yeah. am today. And you do such a good job of breaking it down. Where can people find those courses? And we'll be sure to link it in the show notes. Yeah, so um, my website is simplehormones.com and it's primarily aimed at healthcare providers, but it also has an opportunity if patients are in some other area other than uh, Southern Central Ohio, where they might be able to see you. I also have a referral program that I can help patients find a hormone optimization specialist in their area. I can't guarantee that there's somebody in their town, but I'll give it my best shot. I have about three to five patients every single day who are asking me for referrals. And so I'm really kind of trying to emphasize how can I help these people, both men and women, find a doctor, nurse practitioner who can really help them with their hormones. Yeah, because you would think, a lot of people think, well, I'm just going to go ask my OBGYN. You would think that most OBGYNs would know this, but I practice that way, and I'll be the first to tell you that just because you're an OBGYN does not make you a hormone expert. Right, and and a lot of uh, both primary care providers and OBGYNs have in the back of their mind this idea that hormones cause breast cancer because whether they've read the Women's Health Initiative or not, it's had a major influence on their practices. And it's just in the water in mainstream medicine that hormones are bad. And a lot of providers really haven't read the Women's Health Initiative closely to really see what it says and what it doesn't say. And that's a sad thing. So sometimes it, you can't necessarily rely on your primary care provider or your OBGYN if they haven't had some specific training in how hormones and hormone optimization really work. Yeah. So I wanted to focus today specifically on osteoporosis. I've had, you know, let me back up. Most of my patients who are coming in for hormone optimization is specifically wanting symptom relief. But lately, I've had some savvy patients who have come in specifically of, I don't have any symptoms. I got over menopause or got through menopause without any issues, but now I have bone loss or now I have osteoporosis. And I've done some research that hormones may help me. Um, and they're exactly right. So I thought this would be a great topic um, to expand on with you. 
Absolutely. You know, I've talked to a lot of providers. I have had several specific conversations about this topic specifically. And the the bottom line with all these providers that I've talked to is we all agree that women who have severe menopause symptoms are kind of the lucky ones. And the reason they're lucky is because those women are motivated. If they're having hot flashes every 10 minutes, which if you calculate that out, that's about 144 hot flashes a day, which is absolutely devastating to someone life, not to mention humiliating and embarrassing and causes all kinds of problems at work. Just that example alone of hot flashes, a woman who has severe hot flashes is going to come to you, Amy Brenner, and say, I really need some help. This cannot go on. But I have a couple of stories I'll, I'll share a little bit later about women who had zero symptoms and they just sailed through menopause with no problem at all. And so those women are not motivated to take a look at the benefits of optimizing their hormones. And because of that, over the long term, they experience some devastating health risks that they could have avoided. And there's there's a list of those. Essentially, I would I would like to focus on four of them and, and one specifically. Um, the first and probably the biggest health risks that women face in af after they go through menopause is heart disease. Heart disease kills more women than anything else, period, by a mile. It kills eight to 10 times as many women as breast cancer does. So heart disease is a huge problem after the age of 50, which happens to be when menopause goes into effect. Um, and that's just, just one issue. Uh, the second is Alzheimer's disease. Cognitive decline is seriously affected by your level of estradiol. Over your lifetime, if you have adequate levels of estradiol and progesterone, you're less likely to experience cognitive decline. And then things like insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes are also very serious risks. And those can lead to things like heart disease and Alzheimer's. But the fourth one that I want to focus on is osteoporosis, which is a weakness and a likelihood of getting broken bones. And that is an extreme risk that most people have no clue about. They don't think about it at all until A, they've been diagnosed with osteoporosis, or B, they actually break a bone. And it's a very serious problem for a lot of women. In fact, I'll end with this, and that is that Osteoporosis, I was just reading a book about estrogen and hormone optimization. People who have a broken bone due to osteoporosis, 25% of those people will die within the first year because they have to have a surgery and they end up in a rehab facility and they maybe have a blood clot or they maybe have pneumonia. A, a large percentage of those patients, especially older patients, end up dying indirectly from osteoporosis. It's a major problem. And we'll talk about more of the more of the problems associated with osteoporosis as well. Yeah. I think those are great points of uh, all the health benefits. And so this is something I, again, I like to talk to every patient, you know, you come in for your annual exam and pap smear and you're not on hormones and menopause. And, you know, that's great that you got through menopause without any problems, but the hormones, it's not like the flu where you just get over it because the hormone decline is permanent. And it, and so all of those diseases that you're at risk for are just ongoing. And even NAMS, the North American Menopause Society, who I think years ago were kind of anti-hormones and they're 
kind of mantra was take the lowest dose for the shortest period of time. They, and they're the traditional hormone, they're the traditional OBGYNs follow them. Uh, even NAMS has switched their position that the benefits of hormone replacement because of all these reasons outweighs any potential risks. So absolutely. And also um, one of the things that I've really been emphasizing recently is the earlier in menopause you start, the sooner those benefits kick in and the more effective they are. And that has to do with heart disease, with insulin resistance, uh, and especially with osteoporosis. If you go 10 years without hormones, you start menopause, let's say at age 51, the average age, and you go to age 61, and then you say, oh, well, I have osteoporosis. I better start doing something. That's kind of late. Now, it's going to make a difference if you start hormones, but it's going to make the most difference if you start right when you start menopause. And yeah. so that's a huge thing. And the, there are several studies that show exactly the same thing when it comes to hormone replacement therapy and uh, heart disease. If you start those very early, then you're likely to have a lower risk of heart disease. If you start them late, it's not nearly as helpful. Yeah. So what do you tell somebody who's like, well, I've already been 10 to 15 years without hormones. Is it too late? Should I even bother now? I tell them that it's never too late to start hormones. Now, your benefits are probably going to be reduced because of that time you went without hormones. Uh, but what you don't want to do is go the rest of your life continuing on that downward slide, whether it's through heart disease, through cognitive decline or bone loss or muscle loss, for that matter. What you don't want to do is continue that downward decline. You want to either at least stop the downward decline and possibly start going back up, which is possible when you optimize your hormones. And it's not really possible with any other therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more is uh, that it's not that it's not going to help. It's that unfortunately, you may have already had a chance to develop some of these other diseases. Um, um, so anyway, about osteoporosis, this is something that I think most OBGYNs I think are doing a, and primary care doctors are doing a good job of screening for osteoporosis. And we have our patients right at menopause or people that are high risk for bone loss, get a, a DEXA scan, which is just a quick x-ray of your bones to see, kind of get a baseline of, you know, your bone mineral density of, do you have osteoporosis or osteopenia or thinning bones? Um, and I think most OBGYNs do a really good job of actually ordering the test. But then the question is, is what are they doing about it? Right. And, and there are a couple of different strategies that providers will use to help patients who are at risk of osteoporosis and broken bones. One strategy is to, to tell them to take calcium and vitamin D. Unfortunately, there are several studies that kind of indicate that calcium and vitamin D is not all that effective at increasing bone density, especially if you don't have optimal hormone levels, specifically estradiol. That's the single hormone that has the biggest impact on bone density, both in men and in women. Um, but the, the research seems pretty clear that calcium and vitamin D, it may make a tiny bit of a difference, but not significant enough to protect you from broken bones in the long term. Now, the second strategy that's probably 
equally common or maybe even more common than calcium and vitamin D recommendations is a drug called bisphosphonates. It's a category of drugs. Uh, one's called Fosamax. There's one called Actinel, and there are several others. Some of them are tablets that you take orally. Some are injections. Some you take uh, once a day. Some you take once a week or once a year. Um, those have some ability to slow down the loss of bone in menopause, but they're not all that good at, at really reversing that bone loss and helping you build back the bone that you've lost, um, where estradiol levels can increase your bone density. The other problem with bisphosphonates is that the, the tolerance is pretty low. Um, I was just reading a, a, a reference just yesterday and today about patients who take bisphosphonates. And it was it was amazing. Something like 70% of patients taking bisphosphonates stop taking them in the first year because they get severe nausea, severe upset stomach. They get joint and muscle pain. Uh, sometimes they can actually get bone damage from drugs that are supposed to uh, build up their bone. So the bisphosphonates, uh, they have a lot of a lot of proponents and a lot of providers believe that that's the key to osteoporosis, but it's not nearly as effective as estradiol is, optimal levels of estradiol. It's also, it basically just treats one problem in menopause, that's the bone density problem, and it doesn't do it all that well. It doesn't do anything for hot flashes, it doesn't do anything for heart disease, doesn't do anything for insulin resistance, Alzheimer's, or any of the other uh, long-term health risks. Yeah, or your that, vagina. <laughs> right. Vaginal issues, uh, painful intimacy, those kinds of things. What do you think? Also, it has some other kind of significant side effects of causing osteonecrosis of the jaw and actually having your teeth fall out or even build, or I call it, it builds weird bone of causing atypical fractures. That is an, a major problem. We're talking about using a drug to prevent fractures and it maybe prevents fractures, but it gives you another kind of fracture. Is that a good idea? I I don't think so. Uh, th this necrosis of the jaw sounds terrifying. I actually, my, my wife and I have a friend who had to have her jaw removed because of cancer, and it was totally disfiguring. It's been like a terrible situation. So losing your jawbone is a terrible thing. Um, and that just doesn't sound good at all. Now, obviously, a lot of people will say that doesn't happen very frequently. And, and I'll, I'll grant you that it's probably not, you know, 20% of patients, but if it does occur, it's, it's a serious, serious adverse effect. Yeah. Um, it, it, it just, it just doesn't make sense to me because it's not something that kind of nature or our creator intended us to have versus, you know, bioidentical hormones are bioidentical versus the bisphosphonates is, you know, that was thought up and created by a pharmaceutical company that interferes with how bones are remodeled and just stops a particularly process of it versus I do like vitamin D with vitamin K and getting your optimal levels of vitamin, vitamin D and K. Um, versus sometimes patients will say, well, you know, I go out in the sun every day for 15 minutes and, uh, I drink milk, um, which, you know, that's a whole other discussion of should we be drinking milk, but uh, actually, from, actually, a, from another species, actually. Right. I did a video on vitamin D. And in my research, I firmly believe that this is true. 
that in order to get enough vitamin D from milk, you need to drink two and a half gallons of milk every single day. Mm. Now, I don't know about you, but that would give me diarrhea if I were to drink two and a half gallons at, at any time. But vitamin D is great, but you can't get it from milk. You could get it from yeah. salmon if you ate salmon five times a day, every single day. But, you know, that's that's another topic, as you mentioned. Yeah. I do think vitamin K is very important for the building of bones. It's something that I've I've been recommending a lot more in the last few years for patients. Vitamin K is is a often overlooked vitamin. Yeah. I haven't really seen anybody have optimal levels of vitamin D unless they're supplementing. So I usually recommend all my patients and particularly my bone loss patients to supplement with vitamin D and K. Um, right. So anyway, what kind, of dosage, what kind of dosage of vitamin D do you usually recommend for patients? Usually my starting dose is 5,000 units a day. Um, or sometimes people want to take a weekly dose of 50,000 a week and then and then check their levels and see if we need to go up or down based on on that. How about you? Uh same. I'm I'm looking at 5,000 is kind of a standard. Um I've I've also done a little bit of uh research into vitamin D overdose, which is possible, but vitamin D overdose really only happens if you take that 50,000 unit capsule every day that's when the overdoses happen. And so unless you're taking humongous doses every single day, it's unlikely to be much of a problem for most people. Right. Um, what else are you telling your patients with osteoporosis um, to do? What about, can you comment on um, the other hormones, like particularly testosterone? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, starting to do a little bit of research into testosterone uh, for both men and women as far as its impact on osteoporosis. There's a lot less information about testosterone and uh, bone bone density increasing. Now, my suspicion is that it has a, a somewhat of an impact, but I also suspect that estradiol is still the primary hormone that that makes a difference in growing uh, additional bone density in both men and women. Now, as you're aware, uh, women have higher levels before menopause of estradiol, but actually after menopause, men have higher levels of estradiol um, because what men's bodies do is there's a process called aromatization and that converts testosterone into estradiol. And I, I'm, I need to do some more research into this, but I'm pretty convinced that it's the estradiol that men have that comes from their testosterone. That's what helps them maintain strong bones once they get older. Now, the other problem we run into with men as they get older is they also lose their testosterone and indirectly they're gonna lose that estradiol. So osteoporosis is a problem in older men. It's just fewer older men have osteoporosis than women. It's much more prominent in women. Um, but I, I do think that both estradiol and testosterone, it's a little unclear to me based on the research, the very small amount of research that I find, and I haven't really dug very deeply about how much, uh, let's say a woman who takes testosterone in menopause, and there are a lot of women who take testosterone, it helps with sex drive and uh, muscle strength, but it's hard to tell if the dose that women take will be enough to make a difference in bone density. I think it will, 
but I'm not sure about that. And, yeah, and, I think there's some studies of specifically testosterone only pellets in women. Um, mm -hmm. I can't remember if it was uh, Rebecca Glazer who did the studies of showing that testosterone pellets um, can specifically help with osteoporosis. Um, but most of our patients actually take estrogen, testosterone, and even progesterone. And I, and I don't know, do you know the data of progesterone? I know there's not a ton, but I thought that even progesterone has a small favorable effect on bone. There is. It's not nearly as good as estradiol, but it it is, uh, progesterone is likely to increase bone density along with estradiol. So the combination of estradiol and progesterone is even better. And the combination of all three would uh, cover all the bases as far as increasing bone density. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, testosterone can also help with muscle loss. So, cause that's a, a common issue that I hear with my patients as well. Now it's usually in the context of body composition and, and what you look like and feeling flabby and that kind of thing, but actually losing muscle is more than just kind of what you look like and how you feel. And there's actually some, some health consequences of losing muscle. In fact, I, I don't, do you ever follow, do you follow Peter Atia at all? I, every week I, I listen to his podcast every week. Yes, same. I love him. So, um, uh, but he actually, I think he might've said the phrase of muscle is a, the currency of aging. Right. He, he really emphasizes the importance of having uh, muscle mass and muscle strength and to really keep that built up as much as possible. Uh, a very common issue, especially among men as they get older, but also among women, is this idea of sarcopenia. And sarcopenia is also sometimes referred to as muscle wasting. And it's essentially the loss of muscle mass, the, the quantity of muscle and muscle strength, the ability of that muscle to move a weight. So what we what we end up with is a person who's, let's say, 80 or 85 years old has lost a significant portion of their muscle mass and their muscle strength in both men and women. And so what you get is this problem of it's, it's referred to as frailty. And you imagine a, an 85 year old woman who can barely stand up stably, who can't really very well stand up out of a chair who maybe wobbles when she walks, she has a, a great tendency to fall. That woman may also have very weak bones because of osteoporosis. So if she does fall, she has two problems. Her muscles are not able to catch her and stop that fall. But when she lands, her bustle, her bones are also brittle, so they'll snap. And it's most common uh, to have a break in the the femur, the top of the femur, which is basically a hip fracture. Now, the, the general progression of what happens with, let's say, an elderly woman, 85 years old, who has osteoporosis or weakened bones, they're basically hollowed out bones, that woman uh, is unstable because of her muscle weakness. She ends up falling on a, maybe on a very simple step. Maybe it's just stepping down off of a porch, you know, a step that's that tall. She steps off of it and lands a little bit too hard. That snaps off the top of her femur. She goes down. 
She ends up in the hospital, has to be carried by ambulance, has a major surgery, has uh, maybe a couple of weeks in a rehab facility, ends up needing to use either a walker or is maybe even confined to a wheelchair, and in many cases may actually end up in an assisted living or a nursing home, losing her independence. And it all started with weak bones and weak muscles. And if she didn't have the weakness in those two areas, she might be able to bounce right back. First of all, not fall in the first place. Or second of all, when she did fall, maybe, you know, dust herself off, stand stand up and go about her business and not maybe have a bruise, but not have this serious, serious problem. Um, I, I may have mentioned already, but the, the statistics are that somewhere around 20 to 25% of people who fall and break their hip due to osteoporosis end up dying within the first year. Yeah, That's a huge I actually number. thought it was higher. I would have said it was about 50%. So. I, I think Peter Atia said 40%. And I was I was looking around for that statistic and I found 20 to 25. So I thought that was more conservative, but it could be as high as 40 to 50%. It's a huge number anyway, no matter what. Yeah. It's for for just falling number. and having, a, you know, breaking a bone, like, you know, because when you break a bone as a kid playing on the playground, it's okay, I'm going to be in a cast. But when you're older and you fall and break a hip, it's significant. Right. You could end up with pneumonia when you're in the hospital. You could end up with surgical complications. You could end up with a blood clot. There are all kinds of things that can take your life and you're putting yourself at major risk by allowing that weakness in the bones and in the muscles. So I, I wanted to, if it's okay with you, I'd like to share a couple of stories. Oh, of absolutely. Specific people that I knew who had significant problems with these two issues. The first is a woman, I'll call her uh, Katerina. Katerina uh, went through menopause. She didn't really have very many symptoms, but she did take Premarin for a while. Um, and I, I don't really know all the story about Premarin, but at some point she stopped taking Premarin. And eventually she was diagnosed with osteoporosis, probably in her 80s. So she started taking Fosamax. Now, she took that pretty faithfully. Which is over, a bisphosphonate. Yes, it's a bisphosphonate. She took it faithfully for probably 15, 20 years. However, over the course of time, she broke two hips on two different occasions, ended up both times having major surgery, uh, weeks in a rehab facility, and then a, a long recovery period. She was able to walk after that, after each of those broken hips. But she also, over the course of time, developed what are called compression fractures in several of her vertebrae in her lower back. So she had constant sciatica and back pain. And she also was in a car accident right before she had her license taken away. She was holding tightly to the steering wheel and her airbag went off and hit her wrist. And so she had a broken wrist, two broken hips, a broken wrist and compression fractures in her back, all because of her osteoporosis. And the Fosamax didn't really help. Well, this woman, Katerina, lived to be 101 years old, which is a great ripe, ripe old age. However... Her last five to seven years, she was confined to a wheelchair. She walked a little bit, mainly from the bed to the desk, using a walker, and she could, you know, maybe get around a little bit with a walker. But she was in a, an assisted living and finally a nursing home. 
mainly due to the fact that she didn't have any mobility. Her her mind was pretty sharp, but her mobility was totally shot because of these bone fractures. So that was a major problem for her. Now, I'll talk about another woman. Her name was Marjorie. I'll call her Marjorie. Um, she went through menopause without any problem at all. Didn't take any hormones because she didn't need to. Eh, I don't have any problem with that. But at age 82, she took a step fell and broke her hip and she was diagnosed with osteoporosis. This is just such a common scenario. I don't know what she's taking now. She's still alive uh, and she she made it through the surgery and the rehabilitation. She's okay. But this, this is just a very common story that a lot of women experience. I'm sure you have stories in your yes. practice. Women and, the same. You know, but the thing is, is it's not high on people's radar of something that they're afraid of. Like, I think women are afraid of breast cancer. Probably people in general are afraid of cardiovascular disease or Alzheimer's. But I would imagine osteoporosis is really low on people's priority list. But I, I agree. And I, I heard of statistics. I was just reading this book yesterday. And a shocking statistic was that the same number of people die from complications of osteoporosis as do from breast cancer every year. It's equal yeah. to breast cancer in killing people, but no one thinks about osteoporosis as a major health threat. Yeah. Let's get back to talking about muscle weakness and, and what you can do. I, you know, I, again, what we're putting plugs in for Pete Aratia's podcast, which I love his podcast, but he goes on and on about, um, you know, muscle training and looking at your fitness. And because even if you're exercising every day, your, your fitness and your strength is actually going to decline. Um, uh, right. But what can you do to make that decline be a little bit more straight line instead of a roller coaster dip? <laughs> yeah, um, some of the statistics that I've read say that you will lose between the ages of, let's say, 40 and 80, about 1% of your muscle mass and your muscle strength per year. So over 10 years, you lose 10%. And so over 40 years, you're 40 or 50% down from what you were, were before. Um, so that can be a, a huge loss. And that's what leads you to be that unstable tottering person that can't really hold up your body, which is a huge important thing. And Peter Atia, Peter Atia talks about this all the time. But um, from the research that I've done, it's very clear that there are at least three strategies that can really make a difference in maintaining and maybe even improving your muscle mass and your muscle strength over the long haul. And I would say the first one is kind of obvious. It's exercise and specifically um, what's called resistance training, which is generally training either with body weight or even better with dumbbells or kettlebells or some type of resistance bands or working in a gym with uh, resistance machines, um, challenging your muscles with uh, difficult resistance training is a huge part of maintaining muscle mass and muscle strength. Now, the second thing is adequate protein intake. And one of the problems as people get older, they have a lower appetite and they tend to eat smaller meals and they tend to just not want very much protein. 
And so over time, people decrease the amount of protein they eat from when they were younger. The problem is both bone growth and muscle growth require adequate levels of protein. And so I've been looking at the, the specific recommendations for protein. I've, I've uh, listened to some podcasts, Dr. S um, let's see, uh, Dr. Don Lehman from the University of Illinois and a guy named Professor Stuart Phillips at McMaster University in Ontario. I think Don Lehman was actually interviewed on the Peter Atia podcast, but both of those experts in protein and muscle growth have have scoured the literature and the literature really seems to indicate that we need 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So what that would roughly translate to is let's say a 130 pound woman would need about 90 to 95 grams of protein per day. Um, they also in general recommend that it's not all in one meal, but it's kind of divided up in separate meals. So if you have, let's say three meals a day, it would be 30 grams in the morning, 30 grams at lunch and 30 grams at dinner. And that's the, the best way to take that amount of protein. But if you have a lot less than that amount of protein, you're not giving your bones and your muscles the building blocks that they need to be able to create new bone and new muscle. And that's what you want over the long term. Now, the third strategy to you know, maintain- let me just comment on that. I recently started doing, um, we, we revamped our, our weight loss and wellness programs. And so now we really encourage people to use this app. Um, we use an app called Body Sight and it tracks you. You enter your food into the thing. And there's other ones you can do like Chronometer or MyFitnessPal. But um, we have our patients actually work with our wellness coaches and add what they're eating into this food log. And, uh, you know, I was, I didn't do it at first because um, I'm like, I don't need to lose weight and I eat healthy and I don't have time to track. And so then I was like, you know, we started doing things differently instead of doing things in person, we're moving to virtual and, and I'm like, okay, well, I need to do what my patients are doing. So I signed up for our, our wellness coaching with our wellness, um, uh, coaches and started tracking how much I was eating and it was eye opening, like, and so you know, you hear this, I need to eat this much protein, but unless you're really tracking it and measuring it, it's, it's eye opening what you're really putting into your body. I was eating nowhere near the amount of, and, and I thought I was pretty good of making sure I was eating protein at every meal and then filling in around there, but I wasn't eating enough protein and I was eating a ton of fat. So, yeah. my, so. my wife and I had the same thing where we, took a look at how much protein we were eating and we started adding uh, like a berry and spinach and protein shake in the morning along with our breakfast. Um, it's frankly a little bit difficult sometimes to eat the amount of protein that you really need. It's like, I'm not real. I'm full. I'm, I don't want to yes. eat an extra chicken breast or whatever it is. Uh, just, just to give you a, a ballpark idea, I mentioned like 90, 95 grams for a 130 pound woman. Uh, if you think about it, like a, a standard kind of 
medium-sized chicken breasts will probably have 25, 30 grams, somewhere in that neighborhood. So you kind of need to eat three of those a day in order to have an adequate amount of protein. That's a lot. Um, obviously, you want to mix it up and you know have various sources of protein. The one thing I, I like to point out, though, is a lot of people think of nuts as a good protein source, especially if they're vegetarian or they don't eat a lot of meat. Um, you need to be careful when that, that you really understand how much protein is in the foods that you're after. Like, for example, nuts are great and they do have some protein, but many There's nuts a lot have, of fat and a lot of calories, as much fat as they have protein. And so you have to be careful that you don't fool yourself into thinking, oh, yeah, well, I'll just eat a few, eat a bunch of nuts because they're full of protein. They don't have as much as you might think. So just kind of really be aware of what kind of protein sources you have and what you're eating all right so we got protein intake lifting heavy things i couldn't agree more is you know a lot of people think like okay to build to build muscle and build bone i need to go for a walk which is good but lifting heavy things is even better absolutely now that brings to mind another story of a person that i know who walks faithfully every single day at five o'clock in the morning, she and her friend go out and they do like a three mile walk every single day. In the last two years though, she's had some, uh, at least three major occurrences where her leg gave out, her hip gave out, her calf gave out. And it's basically a problem that she's walking, which is great, but she's not exercising all of her muscles. She's not really pushing them with resistance training. And I think that would make a big difference for this person. I, I don't know her well enough to, to recommend that, but you wanna keep in mind that walking is good, but resistance training is better. You can probably combine them both. That's what I do. I do a 30 to maybe 40 minute workout in the morning. And then I do a long, vigorous walk in the afternoon to, to keep myself active. Oh, and that that idea of exercise, in general, what I see a lot of recommendations from the literature and from a lot of experts are, is at least 30 minutes of vigorous exercise, anywhere from three to five times a week. If you did it three times a week, you'd probably be safe. That'd probably be enough. Five times a week would be better. If you're doing it Every single day, that might be a little bit much and you might end up damaging your, your muscles. But 30 minutes, three to five times a week would probably be adequate for most people. And pushing those weights, like you say, lifting heavy things, that makes a difference because your muscles are learning to that they, basically what happens is your muscles have micro tears in, inside them. And those micro tears are repaired over the course of the next couple of days, which is why your muscles get sore after you work out. Those micro tears tell your muscle, we need to build new muscle. And that's what happens is they build new muscle. They can't do it if they don't have enough protein. Now, the last strategy though, for maintaining muscle strength is optimal hormone levels. And especially in men, if men lose their testosterone, then it's very hard for them to maintain muscle strength and muscle mass. So I would say that uh, exercise is going to be greatly enhanced if 
a man or a woman has optimal estradiol and testosterone levels, those are both going to make a difference in utilizing that protein and putting it into brand new muscle tissue, as well as bone tissue. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that uh, weightlifting and resistance training makes a difference in osteoporosis, but it's not very effective if hormone levels are not optimized. It really doesn't work all that well if you're just trying to lift weights. Right. If you optimize your hormones and add exercise along with it, that is a much more effective combination, especially if you have adequate protein levels. Yeah. And I think the the converse exists as well is people ask me like, well, how is hormones going to affect my body composition? And I, I don't think that taking hormones just all of a sudden turns you into Wonder Woman or, you know, this supermodel and has fat melt off of you and build muscle. But I do think when you optimize your hormones and you do the right things food wise and exercise wise, that it does over six, 12 months plus change your body composition and help with muscle and strength. Absolutely. There's also some very clear evidence in the literature that estradiol specifically, and to some extent testosterone, when you lose those hormones as you get to be 45, 50, 55 years old, men or women, that the increase in fat that comes at menopause really seems to be tied with the loss of estradiol and testosterone, primarily estradiol in women. And that increase in fat is mainly called visceral fat. That's fat that's inside your abdomen, around your liver and around your kidneys and around your pancreas. That is the very worst kind of fat that has the worst outcomes. It's also the type of fat that really leads to something called metabolic syndrome, which is a whole a, a whole uh, kind of syndrome of a bunch of different things that all lead you down the path of metabolic disease. And it's just it's just the start of a bad cascade. And so reducing that visceral fat starts with optimizing your hormones. And if you can optimize your hormones right after you go into menopause, you won't ever get that visceral fat in the first place. And so you're you're off to a really good start. Yeah. So before we close, let's just talk about what are our hormones indicated for this? Are they FDA approved to treat osteoporosis? And, and what's the stance on um, these drugs from the FDA or other organizations? Because, you know, I'm not seeing other physicians specifically recommend hormone therapy other than people like myself and yourself um, to use it specifically for this indication. You know, the FDA has actually included language in a lot of hormone products, especially estradiol and Premarin and progesterone, basically warning providers that these are not approved and that you shouldn't use them to prevent long-term health risks like cardiovascular disease or osteoporosis. Now, I think the, the FDA would acknowledge if, if they really look closely, they should acknowledge that estradiol is one of, if not the most effective treatment for osteoporosis. And to say that we can't use it to prevent osteoporosis is just, uh, it's, it's unbelievable for me. Um, but, but I guess that there comes a point where you have to decide which is 
more important? Which is weightier, the long-term health and bone density of my patients or the FDA's recommendation that you not use it for long-term health risks. So I, mean, I think the issue is, is like when you do an FDA study, you have to specifically say like, okay, we're going to take this drug and study it for our primary outcome of osteoporosis versus FDA approved, we'll just say, I don't know, the Vivel estrogen patch. Like their indication that they got FDA approval for is for hot flashes and vasomotor symptoms. And then they secondary look at what it does to bone. So they're not going after that indication. And once you get it on the market, you physicians are allowed to use things off label, um, kind of like birth control pills. Birth control pills are FDA approved to prevent pregnancy. But as physicians, we use it all the time to help people's periods. Right. I absolutely agree. Now, I haven't recently looked at the package insert for estradiol and to see if that type of language is still there. I would I would suspect that it primarily the, the type of language the FDA once included in the package insert would be primarily things like uh, cardiovascular disease that they would uh, really push back against the idea of preventing cardiovascular disease, even though. The evidence in the medical literature, I believe, is very strong that optimal levels of estradiol especially do prevent cardiovascular disease. There is something called the, the timing hypothesis, which says that the earlier in menopause you use estradiol, the, the better it is at preventing cardiovascular disease. And there are a couple of studies, including the, the KEEPS study and the ELITE study that have kind of verified that. Those are randomized control trials that really showed patients who had less cardiovascular disease, especially when they started estradiol therapy very early in menopause. But that's the kind of thing that the FDA is not so sure that we should promote. But do we go with what the FDA says or do we go with what the, the evidence in the literature says? Yeah. At the end of the day, my issue with pharmaceutical drugs is it's here's one drug to fix one problem versus even in our whole discussion you and I are not saying that hormone therapy is the end-all be-all, is that there's a lot to go into treating osteoporosis, but hormones play a huge role, but it's not the only thing that, um, uh, you know, in my opinion, a physician should be recommending. Right. I do think uh, when we go back to the discussion about uh, exercise, protein intake, and hormone optimization, hormone optimization is kind of a fulcrum. It's kind of a, a key point. If you have your hormones optimized, you're going to be a lot more successful at utilizing protein and being able to exercise. If you don't have your hormones optimized, it's not going to be nearly as effective. And so it's, it's one of those key points. It's not the only thing, but it is a key to, to really optimize all of the hormones to make sure that First of all, I like to say, if you have optimal levels of hormones, you can eliminate your symptoms and reduce your health risks at the same time, which I think if people really looked closely at that and they really understood that, then they wouldn't be so uh, anxious about the idea or hesitant to have their hormones looked at. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I think this was a great discussion focusing specifically on osteoporosis. As always, I love having you as a guest and um, we need to talk more specific options or more specific topics just like this. I would love that. Um, let's let's schedule another one. I'm yeah. open.
Yes. So just to conclude, where can people find you again? You know, I I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a special page on my website, uh, simplehormones.com slash healthy her, H-E-A-L-T-H-I-H-E-R, right? Yes. Uh, simplehormones.com slash healthy her. And I'll put some resources on there specifically for listeners to your podcast and people who might've seen us on your YouTube channel. And I'll have some opportunities for patients who maybe need to find a provider to, to look for a referral. And well, I'll, I'll put as many resources on there as I can think about. And uh, I'd be happy to uh, serve your listeners that way. Yeah, that sounds great. Cause you and I are in a mission still to uh, dispel these myths that were came out 21 years ago. Right, right. It's it's an uphill battle, but hopefully we're making progress one patient at a time. I and think we are. Neither at a time. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Her. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and the web. Go to www.dramybrenner.com to learn more. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute as medical advice, the practice of medicine, nursing or other healthcare services. No patient-physician relationship is formed. The information in the podcast and any references, material or links are at the sole discretion of the listener and not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Listeners should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical issues or diagnoses that they may have and should seek medical advice from their healthcare provider for any such conditions.